This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Um, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Dimo Ringov. I'm a professor of strategy, assistant professor of strategy at the Asada Business School. And um, I'm going to be talking about scaling economic and social impact through template development and replication at the base of the economic pyramid. So let's get started. I first wanted to give you an idea of my main research stream. What is it that I'm working on? And I thought, how can I summarize it in one sentence? And the best that I could come up with is that it's the one-to-end problem. Piggybacking on Peter Peel's distinction between zero to one, coming up with new to the world innovations versus one to n, scaling existing valuable knowledge, innovations, practices, templates, business models that you have. And to date, I have mostly explored this in the context of chain organizations, so replication scaling within chains, and mostly in franchise chains. Recently, through collaboration with our, one of our former PhD candidates, I've also explored this question in the context of the base of the economic pyramid, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. And going forward, I would like to increasingly go into uh, digital businesses and the phenomenon of blitzscaling that, say, the founder of LinkedIn has been talking about and actually now has a course uh, in Stanford on blitzscaling. Hopefully, he's going to get that book out soon as well. Um, and I'm mentioning this in case any of you have related interests uh, or ideally data. So definitely come and talk to me after the talk if that's the case. So it's an actual paper that I'm going to be presenting, uh, which uh, came out uh, very recently this February in the Academy of Management Perspectives co-authored, as I mentioned, with a former PhD student of ours, now an assistant professor of entrepreneurship at Aalto University School of Business. And uh, what do we mean by templates? Uh, basically, we mean a system, activity system. Uh, you can think of it as a business model um, that serves as the target and the reference for replication as you scale, as you grow your organization, as you grow your company. And by base of the pyramid, we mean, well, the base of the world's economic pyramid. And rather strikingly, and those of you who are in the business school business uh, are well aware that most of our teaching and research is really focused on that very top over there, the less than 5% of the world's population who command nearly three quarters of the spending power of the world's GDP. Yet, if you think about people making less than $10 a day, I mean, this is more than 50% of the world's population. And uh, researchers uh, would come up with different um, definitions of what we consider the base of the pyramid. Is it $10 per day? Is it five? Is it the two, which is the most stringent definition? But in any case, we're talking about billions of people that have largely been the forgotten people in our teaching and research for a long, long time at business schools. 
So, however, uh, there's good news. The interest towards the base of the pyramid has been picking up, uh, largely spurred by the pioneering work of C.K. Prachalad and Stuart Hart, who came up with this provocative title, The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid in the early 2000s, um, Eradicating Poverty Through Profits, the so-called BOP proposition that you can actually do well and do good at the same time, that you can eradicate poverty as the base of the pyramid through business activity, through profitable business activity. So that turned many assumptions on their heads that we used to consider received wisdom at that point. First, that there is a fortune at the base of the pyramid, even though these billions of people actually account for a small percentage of total spending. Second, that it is business and not government that actually can, can contribute significantly. And um, that you can do well by doing good. You can achieve significant profits or at least be economically sustainable while uh, delivering significant social impact as well. Now there's been a pushback uh, and researchers and practitioners have claimed, hey, it's not that easy. Uh, maybe the picture of the fortune at the base of the pyramid is actually a bit of a mirage. And noting that even the cases of success where uh, businesses and organizations have been able to be profitable while addressing significant social challenges, even in those cases, typically these uh, remain local innovations that don't travel well beyond their original contracts that they were developed for, and thus not really realizing the large-scale impact that was envisioned by the pioneers of the BOP proposition. So um, looking at scalability of such businesses is, uh, is a major, major question and an issue that both practitioners and researchers have now focused on, uh, ourselves included, through this work. As the quote suggests, creativity is not the finding of a thing, but the making of something out of it. And I would uh, add to that at scale. So we do have examples, though. We do have examples of BOP enterprises that have done really well, have done well by doing good, and have actually scaled quite successfully. A prominent one is the case of Aravind Eye Care, Aravind Eye Hospitals in India, which for those of you who are not aware of this uh, organization, they perform almost as many cataract eye surgeries as the National Health Service in the UK, yet at the minimal fraction of the cost. And they have been able to scale their business model very successfully, their template very successfully by adopting what they call a McDonald's approach, very similar to the approach you see a franchise chain adopting. As the quote suggests, Aravind can practice compassion successfully because it's run like a McDonald's, with assembly line efficiency, strict quality norms, standardization consistency, ruthless cost control, and above all, volume or scale. All right. So our approach in this paper is basically to integrate what so far have been relatively disconnected streams of research. On the one hand, we have work 
to which I also have contributed, looking at uh, replication and scalability on top of the pyramid markets, such as franchise chains and other chain organizations. And you also have work at the base of the pyramid, and the two actually so far haven't been talking to each other that much. We identify, uh, through our integrative review of the literature, distinctive conditions um, of BOP markets, as well as key mechanisms that influence the development of templates or business models that would be viable in such context, as well as mechanisms that affect the replication stage. So we distinguish between two different stages, development and replication. Uh, you can call them exploration and exploitation, if you will. And we provide an organizing framework. So how about distinctive characteristics? Uh, there's certainly more than three, but those that are more salient in the literature are the uh, rampant decorum, resource scarcity, extreme resource scarcity, obviously very limited income, but also low literacy levels, low education levels, uh, low managerial talents, uh, productive capacity, etc., etc. It's a fairly barren context in many ways. Uh, it's known for its institutional voids that institutions across labor, capital, product markets, government regulation, contract enforcement, either fail, either underperform, or entirely missing, a uh, so-called institutional void. And they're also known for the need for a hybrid motivation by the entrepreneurs and organizations operating there, meaning both the economic and the pro-social motive, if you want to be successful over the long run. You need to have a little bit of that, typically. So what mechanisms uh, do we identify? Well, we identify six mechanisms that uh, increase the likelihood of success at the development stage, and other three mechanisms that raise the likelihood of success at the replication stage. And I'd like to give you uh, uh, some examples for each. So six key mechanisms to consider when developing a template, when developing a business model that enhance uh, the likelihood that it will be viable in BOP context. First of all, given the pervasive institutional failures and institutional voids, um, the literature suggests that it makes sense to consider developing substitutes for missing or underperforming institutions, fill those voids, um, by internalizing such services. So an example of that, a good example would be M-Pesa, which many of you are probably familiar with. But for those of you who are not, uh, you might be surprised to learn that actually Kenya, a country in Africa, is at the forefront of mobile banking and mobile payments. More than 30% of the GDP of Kenya is transacted on mobile phones, believe it or not. Very simple mobile phones, but mobile phones. And the institutional voids that Safaricom that introduced MPISA uh, identified was that actually a large proportion uh, of the population of Kenya, most people in Kenya, don't actually have access to the formal banking system, don't have banking accounts, don't have credit cards. But they have, the majority have these cheap mobile phones and they have connectivity. So they introduced a fairly low-tech solution that allows people to transfer money, allows for mobile payment, allows for lending, and allows for all sorts of banking services. And it's been hugely successful. 
Second point, which is a bit intuitive given the context, is to aim to deliver really radical orders of magnitude uh, reductions in uh, cost and risks, which one can achieve uh, in various ways, four prominent ones across subsidization, across activities, aggregation, economies of scale, frugal and disruptive innovation, and reducing upfront investments uh, for uh, consumers at the base of the pyramid. Uh, I already mentioned Aravind Eye Care. Well, what they do is one way they can reach uh, a, a vast uh, swath of customers at the base of the pyramid is that they have a two-tiered pricing structure. They have paying clients, those that uh, have a decent incomes, and then have non-paying customers, and they use revenue and profits from the paying customers to subsidize uh, the services that they provide for non-paying customers. An example of aggregation, microcredit, very famous. And you, here you have Muhammad Yunus, one of the pioneers of the microfinance movement, um, where they realized even though most of those people at the base of the pyramid don't have any reasonable income or wealth or savings that, or resources that they can use as collateral, we can actually aggregate them and make loans to groups of people and use uh, social pressure, for example, as a mechanism that promotes enforcement. A frugal and disruptive innovation, EABL, East African Breweries uh, in Kenya, is a great example of that. They realized in 2004 that actually more than half of the alcohol consumption in Kenya is illicit. You don't see it in the numbers. There's people in illicit establishment in the slums, urban slums or rural areas drinking uh, alcohol in the, from these tin cans and straws and looking around nervously whether the police is going to raid their illicit establishment. And also being a bit nervous because Sometimes this alcohol is fortified with battery acid and fertilizer and methanol and ethanol, and sometimes you go blind, sometimes you die. So you take a certain risk when you engage in this activity. So what they did is they completely redesigned the value chain, and I'll show you in a moment uh, how they went about it. But keep this picture in mind to see the before and after. Uh, an example of reducing upfront investment, a uh, great example is Toyolo, uh, who provide um, cooking stoves in Ghana that are much more efficient than the existing solutions and cost only $7 each. You would think $7, who needs reducing the upfront cost is nothing. But if you live on $2 a day, it's actually a lot of money. So they sell them for free, meaning there's no upfront cost, you just bake it. Bring it home. Here you have them, those cooking stoves. They're much more efficient, so you burn far less coal, about 30, 40% less. And the idea is you keep the savings, because you need to buy less coal. And then in three monthly installments, the first three months, repay the seven, the $7. So they lend you the amount. All right, uh, third key point that emerges from the literature is the need to prioritize business model as opposed to technological innovation. I mean, new to the world technology is often not the right solution for the BOP. It's too expensive given the significantly limited savings and income 
of limited capacity to absorb the risks and of malfunctioning that sometimes come with new technology, very low literacy levels sometimes and education at the BOP, and near complete lack of supporting service and maintenance infrastructure. So what would be an example of business model innovation? I already alluded to the case of EABL, East African breweries in Kenya. So they completely rethought their entire value chain, starting from research. They used to sit in their nice offices in the capital. Uh, they didn't even know what the POP consumer looked like. And they realized, hey, if we want to reach that consumer, maybe we should go there where the consumer is. So they went to the slums, they built um, cross-functional teams that would go to those areas on a weekly basis and meet the customer, learn about it, learn about the people distributing the, up to that point, illicit product, the bar owners, the illicit bar owners. So starting from research, going into um, product, they went from bottled beer, which they realized is way too expensive, to kegs, they went from distribution in trucks to distribution in trucks, but also hand and wheel carts, um, because not all areas were accessible through trucks. They worked with the government to legalize these establishments that you saw um, and make them legal and uh, with some health control as well. So this is what they look like afterwards, much better than what you saw initially. And, um, and they built an entire distribution system out of scratch, basically. So these illicit bar owners and establishments starting from zero, within three years they had 4,000 of those. Pretty impressive. Captured 18% market share, 4,000 establishment in three years, and profitable. They were actually making money. This was not just a CSR initiative. They were doing good, addressing health concerns, providing a much nicer experience for people while doing well, while actually making money. Uh, fourth point that is quite salient is the need. The typically people with a, what we call global mindset tend to do better in terms of developing successful solutions for the BOP. Why is that? Well, foreign MNCs with no exposure to the BOP context are typically foreign to that context. They don't really know what's going on. And, not even what the needs are, let alone the solutions. And they also tend to have a fairly limited committed, uh, commitment to the base of the pyramid. And there's tons, tons of cases of programs and, and products and services for the BOP being canceled and marginalized and assigned to CSR departments as a result of management change or because you had some early stumbles, etc. Yet if you're too local, you, you tend to design solutions that are very local and don't scale easily. You don't know the prior art, how similar problems have been tackled in the past, as well as how, what kind of differences you have to take into account when designing the solution to make sure it's scalable going forward. So um, what would be um, good examples? Uh, Dr. Martin Fisher from Kickstart, a British guy, uh, PhD educated with more than five years ex of experience in development work in Ghana when he started developing Kickstart. Kickstart makes um, irrigation pumps, uh, manually operated, very cheap, very sturdy, very effective. 
uh, that they've been selling now throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, again, uh, the global perspective combined with deep local knowledge and expertise and commitment to the context. Muhammad Yunus, born and raised in Bangladesh, PhD in economics from Vanderbilt, one of the founders of the microfinance movement, founder of Grameen Bank. Again, local knowledge, deep local knowledge, deep local commitment with, with uh, global awareness and expertise. Fifth, again, another finding was it really pays to aim for simplicity and go for solutions that don't require the customers to change too much, to engage in too much behavioral change. So some of their habits and ways of thinking can be very, very stubborn in a way, hard to change. And um, as a result, even products and services that are offered for free, and you would think, well, these are very poor people, you offer them something for free, they'll embrace it. Not necessarily, turns out. There's a famous example of mosquito nets being distributed and people not using them, not taking them, and the product not being adopted because a good proportion of the people at the BOP thought that malaria is actually not caused by mosquito bites. Uh, they didn't realize that's the case. And even some of those that did thought, well, it's too inconvenient. So, and um, in the cases when you do have to break through local, establish local beliefs and habits, it helps to enlist the support of opinion influencers and early adopters and to consider positioning the products as sort of as a premium, as a status symbol. And finally, sometimes you just have to accept that you need a purely philanthropic intervention rather than a financially sustainable uh, one. Uh, case in point, Sunny Shop in Cambodia, guess what they do? They provide toilets for uh, villages in Cambodia. Turns out there are many villages in Cambodia where you won't find a single toilet, not one. And that causes massive problems uh, with uh, diarrhea, dysentery, hepatitis, all sorts of epidemics. So, but again, they realize they really have to overcome the existing patterns of behavior, and they realize it's not so easy. So they enlisted the support of uh, local elders and people that were perceived as high status, like people with some education and literacy, to hold on these um, education seminars uh, for, for people uh, and explain the benefits of having a toilet installed, the how to use it, how to maintain it, um, proper sanitation, etc. And then those people will then become teachers for the rest of the community, will become ambassadors for, for the product in a way. Final point of the development stage, um, co-creation. Uh, you don't want to see the BOP solely as customers, potential customers but you want to integrate them throughout your value chain as uh, partners, as producers, um, to give them an opportunity to earn some income, which benefits you as well, but also importantly, to get acceptance for your product and service, to get a buy-in, to make sure your products and services are relevant, are affordable, and are appropriately distributed, accessible. Um, one example of that, um, we already mentioned EABL, uh, where they employed the local formerly listed by owners 
as their distributors, which was very unusual for this company. By the way, East African Breweries is owned by Diageo, headquartered in London, that offers, that sells you all sorts of premium drinks that some of you will consume tonight. And uh, for a company focused on premium drinks to get into the slums and uh, legalize illicit barn owners was very unusual, so it was a bold move. Uh, many other cases in point, uh, we can talk about Hindustan Lever, Bragg, which um, used to stand for Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, uh, nowadays uh, bringing resources across communities or something of that sort. It's actually the number one NGO, development NGO, in the world these days in terms of impact. So they, certainly for the purpose of distribution, they tend to always uh, use local people. Um, and the so-called village ladies uh, are famous in that uh, regard. Mechanisms for, uh, to increase the likelihood of successful scaling once you have developed a viable solution that has been proven to work at the original size. So what can you do to enhance the likelihood of successful and the speed of successful replication? Turns out it's actually important to manage the visibility of your activities something that may not be always intuitive, but as you grow and become more visible, some of the people in this context, they understand this as a symbol of profitability, of success. And uh, more often than you would imagine, you get claims for contribution by all sorts of parties. And um, it seems to be the case that it is based, best to actively manage visibility. And while your organization is still young, resource-constrained, fragile, to keep a low profile, fly below the radar. And once this uh, liability of newness of adolescence is overcome, if you will, uh, and the organization is strong enough, then actually it pays off to promote, enhance visibility, and get you know, governments and other local bodies involved to help. Uh, here are some quotes. To avoid the backlash from those on whom their success depended, entrepreneurs took measures to minimize visible symbols of success. They were altering their business model in a way that decreased exposure, working without publicity, disguising the nature of the business, and moving the business to new locations where the illegitimate actors could not find them. All right, second point, infrastructure building. Oftentimes, as you try to scale, uh, there is vital infrastructure in those contexts that is missing. So um, what do you do about it? Um, ideally, you would think about it in advance and, and uh, try to accommodate that. But also, you want to work with other interesting parties that can help you in that regards, such as uh, foundations, NGOs, Etc. so that the costs are not uh, borne by the focal firm alone. Um, here's an example of a foundation that invests in agriculture in Africa, including uh, supporting infrastructure that many BOP businesses uh, have received uh, support from in that regard. And finally, leveraging collaborations with influential interesting third parties uh, can be uh, really, really helpful and important Yet, and you think that's intuitive, but you see that the founder syndrome that is known in the entrepreneurship literature is actually quite pervasive in BOP context as well. 
So oftentimes founders are reluctant to seed control and to put together the structures that would ensure the replicability, uh, the scalability of their business, that cling on to their initial idea, they believe that small is beautiful, that uh, the social impact will be diluted if, if they start to grow too much. And yet, collaborations uh, can, be, can be very, very helpful if they actually want to grow their impact. And there's the example of Bragg, for example, uh, which, as I mentioned, these days is ranked as the most impactful non-governmental development organization in the world, operates across 11 countries, started in Bangladesh, now across 11 countries, serving more than 150 million people. And um, they are managed to finance themselves 80% of their expenses. So they generate enough revenue to cover 80% of their costs, and the rest uh, they finance through the help of various foundations, so leveraging third parties. And um, that's all I have. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Isade, inspiring futures. Yeah.